Digital 410 Media proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Dennis Blocker. Digital 410 Media proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Dennis Blocker. What's up, Pella? Can't hear you. Can't hear me? I, I got a pretty fair amount of money in there, and it's, it's like... It's like I'm not worried about that little percentage and all that. Yeah, there's it's hardly anything anyway. Yeah. I mean Hello, hello, test test. Can you hear me? Hello, hello. Yeah, I can hear you. You're pretty low. Okay. How do I sound? Good. Yeah, it's weird. You usually Blowing the windows over here, but I can't go again. Yeah, give me a second. Give me a second. I'm gonna try to turn it up. Okay. Gonna be fun. <clears throat> we were just singing uh, local bank praises. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Today's new uh, new economy. I haven't refinanced my house yet. My mortgage has gone up to another four hundred dollars. Yeah. Usually have a little scrap. So we're not on the air. He's like a little pencil. I'm coming across the country. And I was cleaning my trailer. I think it had been sitting for the tires were dead. And I had a tire go flat. So at Cookville, they have a Walmart. So I went in there and got the tire. I put it on my cart. I'm looking at these other cars. I'm like, and they're all, I need, I need four. <laughs> so I go to get the second one. I'm right out. 
and all the stories I grew through. Going on Navy Fed. Man. That quick. Yeah. Oh, I call him on. Hear me now. Hey, that sounds good. So here's what we're going to do. I didn't do it last week because Dennis and I didn't get enough into the Iwo Jima stuff. But we have, oh. I mean, we talked a lot about the, the landing craft and the, the Navy side, but we didn't get into the whole invasion aspect of it. So what I'm going to do tonight, you and I will talk the invasion stuff, but we don't have to worry about like going super long with it because I took that interview that I did with uh, Robert Glenn, who served from Saipan all the way up to Iwo Jima, and I just cut out clips of his Iwo Jima experience. And so as we're talking about it, because we're not going to do this live, I'm going to go back tomorrow and insert his real-life remembrance of Iwo Jima as we're talking about it. I think that'll give our show something different than any other podcast is doing Iwo Jima because how many people have sat down with an Iwo Jima vet and got his first-hand account. So I'm going to, after we do the show, I'm going to listen to it tomorrow and in appropriate spots. I've already, I've already went last week and edited it down. I got 10 clips, each of them about a minute and a half. And so... You know, we don't have to worry about going a whole 120 because I got, you know, about 45 minutes worth of, or 30 minutes worth of stuff we can interject in there. So as we're talking about it, I can fade into his remembrance of yeah. it, which I think will make for a, a cooler episode. Yeah, I agree. And I was kind of going to suggest something along the same lines of we can talk the invasion and all the, all the stuff that, you know, people kind of already know. But I wanted to talk about those three specific Iwo Jima veterans that I had, you know, the opportunity to meet and just kind of share those three experiences, you know, that people may not have heard. Cool. So what we'll do is we'll kind of do the outline of Iwo Jima, the dates for the people who don't know. Plus, it's kind of cool sure. that today, not only is today the 19th, but today is actually Monday the 19th. So it's like the yeah. day. <laughs> it's like the yeah. actual day. <laughs> and so we'll set all that up. Wow, this thing's super hot. Um, hello. Yeah, I'll turn my mic down. But yeah, so we'll, um, you can talk about your vets. I can interlay stuff with Robert Glenn in there. I got to get rid of sound settings. Which one did that come out of? Oh, that came out of that one. I got to turn sound settings off on that machine. Sound settings. We do not want system settings on there. Hello. Cool. And, uh, yeah, we go from there. And, uh. The 16th, I'm going to Bradenton to do a in-person interview. I'm going to take my two GoPros and set them up, and I'm trying to get Carrie to go with me. If she can't go, I'm going to ask Mike to go, to have somebody with a camera doing dynamic recording so that it's just not two static cameras so that I can turn that into a video as well. So we'll have that content. And then um, I'm going to talk about the shirt later. Uh, the guy who actually made this, brought this shirt back in existence. There's only 150 of them that exist right now. Oh, wow. Um, he made them for a, a Marine Corps event that was being done. It was a, uh, where's his, got too much shit open here. Where the hell did I put it? Must have had too much stuff. Oh, here we go. So he made these. For a uh, Cape Gloucester event that's being put on in Ohio, huh. and these don't exist. You can't get no one puts out reproduction version. Like if you type in World War II jungle sweater, 
you'll see the ones from Vietnam, like the the thick vertical stuff and with the holes, like the modern day stuff. And he actually, I'm going to have him on a later show, so I'm not going to get all these details tonight, but him and his buddy went to the archives, got the original quartermaster's measurements for this, got a hold of uh, Bronson Manufacturing, digitized it, got a hold of three real ones, sent them the real ones, and they wow. made these to spec. Now, Bronson's going to release them next year, but they're going to be in modern sizes because these are original sizes. Like, the sleeves are a little short because that's the modern. that was the size of the day. But these are actually made for the jungle for the Marine Corps originally so that in the winter, winter time, you could wear them underneath your HBTs that keep warm because it's they're 100% wool. But, yeah, and so cool thing about these is the um, – uh, the Marauders wore them because uh, oh. they fought in Burma, and the uh, so um, the Marauders basically the Marauders could wear any uniform type they wanted to, but they wore these underneath an HBT jacket, pants. Like they're only required to carry a certain gun, um, certain amount of ammo, but they could wear whatever pack they wanted. So if they liked the original, you know, haversack better, or if they wanted a musette bag, they could choose what. When it came to their gear, because they had to survive in it. In the jungle, they kind of got to cho- choose what was available to them. But, yeah, they're all – you'll see pictures, of a few of them, because there's not a whole lot of Marauder photos. But, yeah, they these were actually issued to them, which I want to grab my book. Yeah. You can actually see it right there. Oh, yeah. Wait, let me see the cover of that book. Oh, that's a Merrill's. Okay. Yeah, Merrill's Marauders. Yeah. What distinguished, what made them different than, uh, than like the Raiders is they actually had, uh, Indian troops and, um, some Chinese troops in their, in their ranks. Huh. So they took literally a mixture of different allied troops and went and fought in Burma behind Japanese lines and they used donkeys to haul all their gear. So once they got dropped uh, in, they were basically on their own until the end of their missions. Hey, so um, a couple of questions I've had for you for a while. Keep forgetting. Did you ever put these out on the website? No, we never discussed the price um, or anything like that. So let me know on these. Oh. Um, I don't know what our inventory is because I got to basically create. I mean, if you want to put them up on eBay and then we can put the link on our website, however you want to do it. I mean, it might make more sense for you to do it under your eBay since you have them in your possession. Yeah, I guess. I mean, my eBay's not going to have, like, what's the scuttlebutt followers or anything. Well, my eBay doesn't either, but, I mean, I can put them. I'll put your eBay on our website. Oh, yeah, if you want to. Yeah, if you do that. I did I did change it to what's the scuttlebutt collectibles. Yeah. <laughs> do me a favor. Just put somewhere, like, in your about or whatever. Just put, you know, items sold on here. Do not fund our podcast or anything like that. You know, right. Just say these are collect. These are items that we've had in our inventory, you know, that we just want to make, you know, that we're making something like this be a little bit different. But, you know, that way people don't think, oh, wow, they're funding their podcast by selling their shit, shit on the site. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. Yeah. But uh, other than that, that I have no problem with you using the name or the logo. I just, you know, just put somewhere like under the about, you know. Just put a little star, whatever, you know. These are just extras we have that, you know, or whatever. This by no way is, you know, okay. a funding source for our podcast or what we do. 
well, that's something. I, so I can just send it to you because I mean I can't edit it. I can send you what, or just edit it however you feel. I can't edit the website. No, I'm talking about on your eBay like profile or whatever. Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Like, I could probably do that. Like for example, if I go on my eBay, let me see. Like if I go to my eBay, I'm gonna sign in. I mean, if you want, I could. I mean, I could put them on my eBay just because I've been selling and buying stuff since 2001, and I have like a super high rating. I don't know if that means that. If the, if you care. But like for under when I go to my eBay, like when people go to sailor details, you can see you can put an avatar and all that and all all that up there. Um, my eBay. So let's see. Uh, let me do this. So here you go. Account settings. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Not no one's really going to go digging in and look. We'll worry about it later. No big deal. But no. Um, I mean, if you want to put them on your eBay, that's fine. I mean, you have them in your. Okay, and then I'll just whatever. Or, I, I mean, mean I can put... I can put them on mine, and then just send you the addresses or whatever, which is fine. Why don't we do that? Just because I've been I got a my eBay rating. Like when people look at, you know, because a lot of times when people buy stuff, they want to know this. You know, can I trust the seller or whatever? I got a three hundred forty well, three hundred forty one rank right now. Let's see. Yeah, I I mean, I'm just starting out, but, man, I'm moving stuff almost every day. Cool. My history goes back to February 2003. Um, and Hun I sh yeah. 135 see. items sold. I got a 100% I got positive feedback. I wish I could use my eBay ranking for my credit score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I let's see. I don't know where I can. Oh, edit profile. Yeah, just yeah. Well, you can just go. Oh, in the about. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just list them, and I'll put ten bucks, and whatever sells, I'll just Venmo you half. How about that? That's fine. Whatever. I just yeah. not even try to do it through. I mean, I just thought it'd be cool, like for the listeners to specifically like. No, that's that's cool. I just be honest with you. I, I don't know. Yeah, I just I've been so busy with all the insanity around here that. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, you want to sell them? Just um, once you sell out of your inventory, just let me know and whatever. We'll go from there. Yeah, I think I've only got like eight. I gave you one, and I'm gonna keep one. Yep. I think he made me ten. Cool. Well, okay, no big deal. And then the last question I had was, when do you want to do the other print giveaway? Um, I want to get. Let's do the end of March just so that we can get some more promotion out of it. Like when we did the first yeah. one, we had like four or five people sign up, but because we haven't done any new episodes with the exception of like two this year, no one, you know, we're not getting any, uh, I need to, we need to, I'm guilty of this too. Let's, let's shoot for March. I'll take photos of it and we need to, I need to post it on Instagram and Facebook. We need to talk about it more. I want, the whole intent is to get people to sign up, but since we haven't been putting on new shows right. and talking well, about it, it's kind of a giving it away, you know, that thing's like worth 400 bucks. I'd like to get a couple yeah. of subscribers out of the deal. Well, maybe we, maybe we use that for these, for, for that, instead of trying to sell them, like maybe this is just swag, like, Hey, you know, the number one person gets the print and number two maybe gets, 
one of these or something. Yeah, we can do that because I was telling um, Dennis last week that I don't think it's anything we're doing. I think it's the economy and people being strapped for cash. We were up to eighty dollars. We're back down to sixty-eight. So we lost like two subscribers. So, um, so we went from eighty dollars down to sixty-eight. So, um, um, okay. maybe the three of us can start whenever we're thinking about stuff, reading about stuff, pull out your phone, record a two or three minute video, send it to me so we can start yeah. posting that shit on Patreon. Cause I mean, yeah, people want to sign up for Patreon to support what we're doing, but they also kind of want the extra behind the scenes shit that's exclusive to them, which I don't, you know, none of us do. I used to do it when I first yeah. started, but you know, we all just need to start. Yeah. We need to start just being a little bit more, um, consistent with it yeah for sure i mean um we have some people who happily sign up to support what we do but i think there's people who want a little extra for their support um it sucks that we were yeah. down to 68 bucks we we're we we're almost when we we're up to 80 i was covering the web hosting and then my the 20 dollars a month i was making off of youtube was covering the the um 14 a month i pay for zoom and so basically we were you know finally not cost anybody anything out of pocket but now we're back down to 68 bucks but uh, maybe like every couple days on um like on social showcase a different thing from the merch a different a, a t-shirt hey the spring is coming get your tank tops your tees your women's tees yeah and, um, you know and try to get more merch rolling too maybe i just sent a hat to poland <laughs> We, really? I, yeah. Um, well, I just ordered a hat for one of our patrons. Let's see. No, Germany. What did McLennan? Did McLennan want a t-shirt or a hat? Um, t-shirt. Okay. Um, I just sent... No, I sent a hat to Germany. And then last week, I sent a shirt to Denmark. Nice. So we got a shirt in Denmark now and a hat on its way to Germany. I, I need to look into the hat. Because there were $7.50. I, um, I need to go uh, on there and see if they have some new ones, avail new styles available. Because at the time, they yeah. they were limited. Um, it's been so damn cold. I was half tempted to go in there and order us the... We have sweatshirts on there. Yeah, I know. And we have the one with the big, the big red logo sweatshirt on there. Yeah. But yeah, so I sent out the hat and the t-shirt this week. Um, and I sent out two t-shirts last, uh, three weeks ago. So this month I've spent about a hundred dollars on shirts and hats. Well, and I'm going to still look into the place here in town about getting, you know, some stickers that when I go to events, try to sell some stickers and I can, and I can send you half of that or something too. Well, if I would have got any damn tax return, I've been wanting to buy just a $200 color high-end color inkjet printer because my Cricut makes you know like the the little green ones but I can do bigger ones instead of doing the vinyl stickers that take a little skill to put on I can make yeah basically what you do is you you use the software send the print job to a high quality inkjet printer you can't use laser because laser will melt the glue and so you got use a high-end inkjet printer and then it prints it on the blank sticker sheet and then you take the sticker sheet put it in the Cricut and it'll cut out around the shape. Actually, put the clear coat on it. Then it'll cut out around the shape. 
not all the way through, yeah. and then you just cut them out, and they're exactly like regular stickers. So I can start making those, but I just got to get me a printer. The printer we right. had, the print heads clogged up on it. So I was able to do one print, and after that, it was like, so. Oh, wow. But anyhow, you ready to get started? Yeah, yeah, that's roll. Cool. Um, yep. Obviously, we're not doing this live. And so if we do need to stop, pause, whatever, we can always go and cut it back out. Full screen. Digital 410 Media proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Dennis Blocker. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. We're back for part two episode for Iwo Jima. Not only are we doing the part two episode for Iwo Jima, as Jeff and I were discussing before the show, not only is it the 19th, but it's actually Monday the 19th. It's like the day. If you're going to have an anniversary of a date, how cool is it to... Only thing cooler is if we would have got up this morning, which we couldn't make it work because Jeff's in a different time zone, but like if we would have kicked this bad boy off at 9 a.m. this morning, it's the only way closer we could have gotten it possibly. Actually, no, the only way we could have done it was to do the backwards time zone math and figure out what time it would be at 9 a.m. in the Pacific and then do the show at that time. But seeing how we both work full time, that's not an option. Welcome back, Jeff. How are you doing, fella? <laughs> yeah, great, man. This is uh, I I really didn't want to miss last week in part one of Evo. You know, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. We've got so many things to share with the listeners, but um, I'm glad to be here tonight. And I know Dennis was uh was great last week for us, so I'm excited that uh you know he's he's part of the team. And Dennis is out this week because he's got the sniffles and he wants to get rid of his sniffles so that he's healthy for your and his close to face to face makeout session next week. So we got to make sure, you know, he wants to keep the creepy crud confined to within his household and we respect him for that. So here's him getting better for uh, your all's mandate next week. And uh, you can all be in good health and good spirits for that. But um, yeah, I think we're, uh, I think we're just going to. Every episode that's available of Masters of the Air, I, I tried to to boycott and wait, and I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I think we're going to watch them. <laughs> yeah, I I still think I might wait until they're all out and then binge watch them. Um, he and I were talking last week. One of the things that I've been doing, and what I suggest to the listeners, like who maybe just now getting into the Air Corps stuff and are just nipping, they want to stay in that realm, they want to get their fix. If you have Hulu, go revisit the remake of the movie Catch-22. It's based on the book. Uh, um, The book is written, the author did fly 60 missions. He was a bomber. The book is loosely based off of his experiences, but more it's based off of his deep, dark minds, paranoia of not wanting to fly these missions and dealing emotionally with the fact that it was 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, Mm. and how he basically it's, it's, 
based on true events, but it really goes off <laughs> to a weird angle. <laughs> uh, so it's fictionalized with the characters and some of the craziness that happens, but it's kind of his way of getting that anxiety out. And the movie from the 70s is good. Um, the first time I saw it, I saw it at a World War II event on a projector on the side of a white trailer. And I got done watching that movie and I said, everybody in that cast must have been hopped up on cocaine <laughs> because that was the craziest damn movie I've ever seen. Um, it, it's just all over the place. And it's very, the special effects, like at some of the crazy parts at the time were way out there. The feeling, it kind of had some humor to it, which in the movie is great, but kind of, it made the whole storyline seem more far-fetched, whereas the modern-day version of it on the TV series that was uh, directed by George Clooney, same storyline, a lot of the same dialogue. Um, they they got rid they added more seriousness to the scenes because you don't have Bob Newhart in it. You don't have some of the other people in it. And I don't want to upset people who love the movie. I think the TV show is a little more palatable for especially World War II historians who don't like uh, fictional history. <laughs> and so, but back to the point is during B-25 Mitchells, they're, bomb they're bombardiers. You get the scene of flat guns and the anxiety of what the guys felt seeing their mission counts go through the roof. And so if you want to experience that same air core, but have the fun of a little craziness and a plot line, Go on Hulu, watch, um, I think it's like eight episodes of uh, Catch-22, and um, you can kind of get a more interesting, comedic, yet crazy aspect of this author's idea of the war. <laughs> um, I don't know, the only uh, way... Yeah, I thought it was a great, great series, uh, to be honest, and I wanted more, and um, unfortunately, you know, when, when I met Kyle Chandler a couple months ago, I really wanted to talk to him about that, but it just wasn't the place and time. He did a great but, job uh, in that. Um I agree. I wanted to, after rewatching it, I wanted to go and watch the original movie because there's just so many people in it. And to see um perfect example, see Bob Newhart play these roles or for those of you who grew up in the early 80s to see uh Mr. Roper from <laughs> from Three's Company play play in this movie. There's so many comedic actors and serious actors and now that I've seen the movie, seen the series the second time i kind of want to go back and watch the movie again because it's interesting to see who they what modern day actor plays the classic comedic actor from the original times and it's i enjoyed it i definitely liked it better the second time but uh no it's a, it's a great flick the the whole syndicate aspect of it is what i'm talking about when i say the crazy parts of it the whole concept of the syndicate and what he what uh, he's doing but you know the funny lines like major 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 who's <laughs> a sergeant yeah and the fact that they they thought he was a major because his dad played a prank on his mom by naming him Major Major and his last name was Major. And so he became a major just through mistake in, uh, in paperwork. And then they didn't want to lose face. So they went ahead and promoted him to major. So then he was Major, 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 Major. So, you know, there's goofy comedic things like that in it. But yeah, check that out. Before we get to Iwo Jima real quick, as we always do, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Uh, pick up a shirt like the one Jeff has. We have our Coffee Guy logo. We have back five or six years ago when like the X logos of different things were popular. We have the WTSP with two bayonets making the X logo. Um, go ahead and pre-order. Get your shirts for next Christmas with the Ralphie 
shirts. We have my personal favorites, the um, K-Ration shirts. We have the breakfast and lunch. I still need to get around to making the dinner one. So we have those with that classic box cover with the different color patterns on there. Uh, we have coffee mugs. Jeff loves them. I drink out of mine every day. It's 10-ounce coffee. I found out the hard way after pouring, sitting at the 12-ounce on the Keurig. Uh, so it is a 10-ounce coffee mug. Um, and uh, Jeff, sometime this week, we got a, a, another item we're going to put up on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, we talked about it last week. We do have, I think we're going to do this in March just because we're talking about doing it in February, but we've only done two new episodes this month. And so a lot of people are behind and they're not aware. So we want to give everybody plenty of time to become aware to go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, sign up for Patreon. Doesn't matter what plan you choose. And as long as you're an active subscriber, you'll be in, enlisted, if you will, or be eligible for this Valor Studio print. And this one is the um, off the line. This one is autographed by Henry Sledge. And as we were saying last week, um, these have been around a while, and these are actually out of the Sledge collection. They've been sitting at Henry Sledge's home and his home office for a few years now. So not only not only is it a great print, but they were in fact part of Henry Sledge's personal collection. So all you got to do is head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, sign up for Patreon. Um, we have three different tiers. One's a dollar. Second one's like, I think it's a dollar fifty, three fifty, and seven fifty. And as we discussed last week, um, you sign up for the seven dollar and fifty cent a month plan, and you are eligible for a t shirt. Or as Dennis and I decided, anything within value of a t shirt. So if you want two coffee mugs, that's fine. If you want a hat, that's fine. Anything in our store that comes to equal or value of a premium shirt. Now, when we give away the shirt, I'm not lowballing you. I literally send you a link. Which shirt do you want? You tell me the size, the color whether it's a premium, a girl, a female, whatever. So anything within that value we'll send. I was just telling Jeff before the show. Currently, there's a hat on its way to Germany, and we sent a um, shirt to, what did I say, Den Denmark last week? Yeah. And so now our gear is getting to be international. And so um, sign up for the $7.50 a month plan and get you a, a item after second month. And that goes a long way to support what we do here. Now, trust me. We understand things are tough and uh, times are hard with inflation. So um, if you want, you can simply support us by going to youtube.com, typing in D410 Media, and just watch our videos. You can uh, watch all the What's the Scuttlebutt podcasts, some of our other World War II content, and um, that'll help support the cause. Uh, exciting news. It's been a long time. Uh, we've talked about this a lot, how as time progresses, our opportunities, our privileges to interview World War II Two vets are getting few and far between. Shout out to longtime friend, uh, fan of the show, been on the show. Big, um, sadly, he retired from World War II reenacting a few years back, but we know him as Cowboy. His name's Doyle. He sent me a message out of nowhere. Say, hey, I got you. Contact, call this guy. He's going to set you up with an interview. I'm going to go interview a World War II vet on the 16th of next month. So that'll be coming down the pipeline. Not only are we going to interview him audibly, but we're going to do some video. So that'll turn into a YouTube uh, video as well. So make sure you go to YouTube.com, look up D410 Media, and subscribe. And there's other content on our channel as well. So if you're into fishing, there's fishing content. There's other podcasts. There's um, fitness stuff. So there's plenty of stuff to be had on our content as well. And I think um, shirts, check. WTSP, check. Oh, shout out. Make sure if you haven't done this, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the link for WLVM World War II Radio. 
He's a big supporter of what we do here. Um, we got some stuff in the future coming up with him. He runs a great, great website, great radio station. We've talked about it in the past, but if you're new here, what they do is they stream in real time, quote unquote, just like a, a modern day radio station, but their entire content is real radio broadcast archives that he found. And so you turn it on and it's not just some playlist like Pandora every day. Is scheduled out just like a real radio station from midnight to midnight. They have 1940s era songs, commercials, sports broadcasts, news clips, everything. And so if you're really into the era and you have an event or you just like myself, like to listen to it in background music at the office and you don't like the Pandora ads or all that and you want to hear music I guarantee you've never heard before, Go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the WLVM World War II radio link, fire that playlist up on your computer. You'll be happy that you did, and I think that's enough of that. That's a beautiful book you have behind you, Jeff, but I think we'll get to that during what you're reading. But let's kick off uh, round two. We're going to do things a little different, because uh, every year, you know, we put out Iwo Jima content, but... We're going to go a little different angle because we have the privilege of having interaction with World War II vets. And Jeff has had, with his past experience with the museum, he's had the privilege to talk to quite a few of them. So, Jeff, take it away. Yeah, like you said, I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's been said and reset about Iwo Jima. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that nobody will ever know about Iwo Jima. Um, but, you know, you and I weren't there. Our listeners weren't there. So I thought... Uh, you know, what better way to really give the listeners something that they can't necessarily uh, find in a book or, or in a movie. And, and that's just to share the experiences of the guys that did hit that beach 79 years ago uh, today. And, you know, like I said, yeah, I've been fortunate to meet uh, several uh, Iwo Jima veterans. Um, and I definitely wanted to be able to, you know, share some of those experiences uh, with the listeners. And, and I guess first and foremost, um, I've got to, I've got to talk a little bit about my old friend T Fred Harvey and, you know, he, um, I'll be honest, you know, <laughs> Jocko, if you go to his podcast, I forget which episode it was, but when Jocko had Fred Harvey on there, it was outstanding. And, um, so, so definitely go check that out as well. Um, unfortunately, Mr. Harvey passed away more than a year ago now. Um, but he really had a neat outlook on just on life in general. I mean, what that guy went through, uh, I think he spent nine days on the Island before he was injured and, and woke up, you know, in a, and basically in the dead man room on a ship, uh, he was so badly off. Um, you know, for, for those nine days and that was his fourth campaign. Uh, you know, he was no, he wasn't fresh meat. He, he, he was a four campaign Marine at that time. Um, and for him to have the kind of outlook in life that he did and to go on and, and coach football and teach school and, and the life that he lived afterwards really a testament to who he was and to, you know, I got to see him just days before he passed away. We went down, uh, brought the whole family, you know, to see him in the hospital. And there was one story that he, he really loved to share, uh, even in his last days. And, um, well, there were several, I guess, but uh, one that he really liked to share that I remember the most about him talking about was, and I'm trying to think of a good title for the story. It didn't really have a title, but it was really 
the promise he had to give to his mom, I guess is the best way to to, to kind of title it. Don, you, you may have heard the story before, but I thought it was incredible when he was leaving West Texas. Um, the uh, train stopped at this little train station somewhere there, right? You know, at, at his hometown and he's, he's going off. He's, he's saying his goodbyes and everything. And, and he remembered, um, you know, some of the girls that he knew at school that kind of really wouldn't give him the time of day. Now he's he's going off to join the Marines, and he said they're kissing him on the cheek and everything. And and the he said, you know, I was about day. to, yeah, yeah, he said, I was about to go over the hill right there and go AWOL with one of these girls. But um, you know, so there's all this fanfare, and they're and they're really sending the boys off in style in this little West Texas town. And and he said, and all of a sudden, somebody grabs him by the ear and. And takes around the back of the corner of the train station there. And it was his mother. And he was very adamant to talk about how his mother was, you know, uh, Comanche Indian. And I uh, forget how many siblings he had, you know, quite a few. She was a pretty tough woman. And, and um, she made him promise a few things. And the first was um, that he was going to come home. Promise that you're going to make it, you know, and come home. And he said, yes, ma'am. And, and she said, and, and when you do come home, uh, you're not going to be a drunkard. And he said, yes, ma'am. Uh, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to come home and, and, and you're not going to be a coward. Yes, ma'am. And, and, and he said, and the last one, he said, that one really got me. He said, and she said, don't you come home with no tattoos. <laughs> of course, when he would tell the story, he was 97, 98. He said, I still don't have any tattoos, you know? Um, well, but you know, are, those are valid concerns. Obviously not, just because she's a mother, but you got to remember his parents' generation lived through World War One. They saw what happened when people came home with the being a drunkard and you know undiagnosed what they called you know combat fatigue or you know um, things like shell shock back then. And so she could have had brothers or cousins or guys that she had went to school with that she saw come back, and she didn't want her son to you know come back like they did right yeah absolutely and then, you know he was the first veteran a uh, world war ii veteran that uh anytime he heard the the term greatest generation he said i never really understood what that was about he said it was my parents he said they were the greatest generation to him and i never really heard that really put into that perspective but he said if you you know like you said it's the world war one the the depression you know being a kid in the depression is tough enough but to think about it from their perspective trying to feed seven eight nine kids during the depression his take on the greatest generation was that you know it was his parents you know like you said they lived through world war one um they were you know it's bad enough to be a, a kid growing up in the depression but to be a parent of six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids trying to raise them and, you know, bring them up and give them a decent childhood during the depression must have really been tough. And and he credited, you know, anytime he heard the term the greatest generation, he always referred to that was his parents' generation. Just goes back to what I said at the beginning. The, the outlook that he had on life, you know, afterward, um, when he came so close to not coming home, um, really resonated with a lot of people and and he never met a stranger. And he was the biggest flirt, and he was still dancing, and you know, uh, girls across the dance floor cutting a rug with him into his late nineties. It just, 
it's just really a testament to to that particular Iwo Jima veteran that I just you know I love so much and I miss so much, uh, and I'm just so proud that I got to share you know a lot of time with him and that he got to share you know these stories with me. Um, it's just uh, really really special. And it's really special to think that he was kind of in his sunset years. He was lucky enough and privileged enough not only to share his stories with people of all ages and locales, but he had that interaction and that relationship with different museums throughout the country, different, as you were saying, podcast host and people in the media. And so oftentimes, you know, when people who live through combat, they, a lot of people want to hear them retell the horrors, but when you're put into a situation like he often was, where he was kind of given his own dissertation or a monologue or a one man show, he got to choose what he wanted to talk about. And it sounded like he made sure to include a large percentage of the positive and the happier things that came out of the war. As we've talked about before, Long before I had the podcast, when I was out doing a computer job at Fort Myers Beach, I was at an ice cream shop. There was a car parked out front, and I was done working, and a guy had a 1st Marine Division hat on, and I said, when did you serve? He's like, 1942, up to, I think he said 44, and I said, oh, you were, you were there at the beginning. He's like, yeah. I crouched down, and I said, were you in, uh, were you in uh, New Zealand? And we, we, we spent 30 minutes not talking about fighting Japanese or campaigns. We sat there and talked about the uh, New Zealand uh, dock workers union strike and how they all had to get off the boats and offload all the boats and reload them during that bad weather. And he said, yeah, I remember the mounds of, of the frosted flake or the corn flakes and the, the delabeled cans. And, and we talked about, we didn't talk about anything combat, but his times in New Zealand and times in the war, that he wasn't in combat. And what surprised him is here's some, and I was like mid thirties at the time, here's some random 30 year old in the mid 2000s who knew about the New Zealand dock worker strike and all the other things that happened during the war and not just the, the basic battles that the general public tend to know about, want to hear about the nitty gritty stuff. Here's a stranger reminding him of quote unquote, the good times of what happened over there instead of the horrible times. And so it's nice when the vets are involved in programs or put onto a program where the host knows enough that they're not quite so interested in forcing them to talk about the stuff that might bring up bad memories unless they instinctively go there in a conversation. It's nice to always have them to have the option to discuss what they want, good, bad, or indifferent. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say the second story that he always talked about. And again, even in his last few days that I saw him, he would, he would ask several times. He said, you know, who taught me how to shave? That's all he would keep asking me. You know, who taught me how to shave? It was Tyrone power, the actor. Right. And he, again, it was one of those like goofy, funny stories that, yeah, we know, you know, so, I mean, this guy was at the foot of Suribachi for those whole nine days. Right. I mean, he was right at the foot of that mountain when the flag was raised and right there. I mean, right in, when we think of Iwo Jima, that was him, right? And um, but yeah, that wasn't necessarily the stuff he would talk about. And and 
it, it really it's a story that really kind of highlights truly the youth of these guys. I mean, you picture he's a four campaign marine. He was a power marine, right? So you know, uh, he actually he went through uh, jump school with IRAs. Wow. And he said, you know, he he said, uh, nice guy. I don't think he said ten words the whole time I knew him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, this is a grizzled Marine veteran, and then he's talking about how the actor Tyrone Power and 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 you know, as a Marine, uh, taught Fred Harvey how to shave because, and, and if you've ever shaved, I know you have, and this the same way I shave even today, with the shave soap and a brush. It does take a little bit of getting used to as to if the soap is a little too thick or too watered. Mm. He said, I never could get it right. It was running off my face or it just, you know, he said, I really couldn't get a good lather. And he said, it was Tyrone Power that really showed me the, you know, really how to do it. And um, things like that. Because like you said, I mean, he could talk about being in that foxhole and these Japanese grenades come hissing in at him. And it was the third one that finally took him out. And wanted them bad enough to be evacuated, and he could tell you about you know the sounds of a of a nambu, you know coming at you, you know facing the business end of a nambu in the jungles, and uh, you know, but he he kind of always went to his mom, how important she was to him, um, who taught him to shave, and how when he was taken off the island, uh, he was carrying a per his mother bought him that nineteen eleven. The Marine Corps did not issue him in 1911. They didn't even have a weapon for him. He was part of a demo team. So he was carrying a personally purchased 1911, and he never got it back. Oh. And he, so he, he was real upset that he never found that thing after the war. Oh, he was upset about losing another piece of item, too. You want to tell about that one? You're talking about how he went to uh, jump school. Oh, yeah. He uh pretty upset when they cut his, his jump boots off. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, the Marine Corps Airborne Division had a very short life. Once the Marine Corps realized it really not a use for them in this theater, we have a large group of men that we could use elsewhere. Same thing they do with the Raiders after a certain point. Say, like, okay, Raiders are cool, but certain uh, certain brass in the Marine Corps is like, well, technically all Marines are special forces. You know, they felt that you know, what's so great about them? And so after a few key missions, they broke the Raiders up and just threw them in regular groups as well. And so at that time, the only thing that differentiated you from any other Marine was the boots, just like we saw in Band of Brothers and how, you know, blousing your, your pant over your jump boots was a big thing because that separated you from the regular Army infantry. The Marines were that way. But even more, I would say, because they had such a shelf short short shelf life which meant that they had a lower number of enlistments and so you know you were few and far between you were like you know when you walked by in those boots people noticed and yeah. to want to have those when you went home and but rightfully so some careless doctor who was more concerned about your life <laughs> not your wardrobe <laughs> cut them off and threw them in a stack in the corner of a boat along with 38 other pair, 38 to 148 other pair of boondockers, you know? Yeah. And he was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll miss Mr. Fred Harvey. And, uh, for those uh, listening, you know, buy his book, uh, hell yes, I'd do it again. Uh, it's, it's a great read. Um, it's one that even, you know, my wife read, um, to really kind of get to the heart of, of who Fred Harvey was and, you know, uh, 
just like I said, I, I can't say enough how proud I was to to get to know him <laughs> and spend some time with him for sure. Great man. And I had the yeah. privilege. He was spoke at the museum when I was out there. So I got mm-hmm. to hear him tell those tales in front of the audience in real time and hear the his telling of uh, his boots and uh, <laughs> got to sit down and have lunch with him and his granddaughters. Yeah. And uh great guy. Very privileged to uh to have had the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the next that that takes me to um I guess we'll do we'll do Herschel Woody Williams. Okay. Uh, now I got to uh I got to meet him several times. Uh did to did a couple events for some speaking engagements that he was at. Um, but one engagement uh, really uh, stood out to me for a number of reasons, and and one it's because he, for the first time, I he talked about something besides Iwo Jima, which that's what I was interested in because I'd heard one of his speeches before. The guy's a Medal of Honor recipient at the time; he was the last living Medal of Honor recipient from the Pacific Theater for the U.S. So I mean kind of a big deal. Everybody wants to know about him and a flamethrower and Iwo Jima. Uh, but at this one particular event, which ironically enough was an Iwo Jima reunion, he talked about his time uh, on Guam with the 3rd Marine Division and the first time uh, that he took a man's life. Uh, you know, Woody was not a flamethrower operator. Um and, you know, as you get to know his story, it becomes more incredible that that was a fa- He was a rifleman. He was a rifleman with initiative. Um, but he's and on a Guam strong with back. A- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Those things are not light. No, no. Uh, about 70, 72 pounds. So, yeah, it's a heavy weapon system to volunteer to have something that volatile on your back. But, you know, as a rifleman, he, uh, I believe he had a grand uh, on Guam and. And, and he talked about that, and I, I thought that was interesting for him to bring it up because it made everything else a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more real. Not that the flamethrower story isn't so unreal, but it, I guess because it's what we all expected. Oh, here's the middle of honor receiving. Woody Williams, here he is. Let's talk about flamethrowers. Uh, to hear his story about the first time he took a man's life was you know, kind of eye-opening, and it it really put into perspective, um, you know, what he went through because I don't think we always think about that uh, when we have somebody that we, you know, we treat as this hero, this national treasure. Uh, we don't think about those little personal struggles. And it was, uh, like I said, it was just very, very interesting, very eye-opening to hear about um, what happened on Guam um, you know, before anybody really, you know, knew his name like we know now. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And that was that same night that, you know, you know, you have different events. They've got little raffle tickets and you try to win stuff, right? Like you never, I, I never win that kind of stuff. Um, but they had several Woody Williams items up there on this table for the raffle and um, all autographed, of course. And and I bought one raffle ticket, <laughs> one and that one raffle ticket was drawn for this nice little bust wow. here of Woody. That's uh, cool. When he, yeah, super cool. And he, he signed along the bottom here. Of course, I had other things with me for him to sign, but um, 
you know, it's an interesting story too, beyond his Medal of Honor, beyond Flamethrowers, beyond Iwo Jima, was how he started the Gold Star Family Foundation. And, you know, that was some of that was the reason for some of the other times I got to meet him was a groundbreaking ceremony for the Gold Star um the statue that they would make. You know, they would they would put it different places all over the US. And um it was because when he initially tried to join the Marine Corps, he was too short. He was turned down. Beginning of the war. He was actually turned down. And he was delivering Western Unions. Wow. And he, yeah. Wow. He grew up, I believe, in I want to say it was West Virginia, um, but you know we can look that up later. But I, I want to say it was West Virginia. Delivered a Western Union, a one of those Western Unions. Yeah, that's now. And for those of you new to this whole thing, you're just getting into the subject matter. You're 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 not aware. Western Union was the number one form of communication from the military, all branches, to the families of those who perished or were missing during the war. And so Woody tried to join the Marine Corps. It was too short. His contribution to the war effort was sadly delivering Western Unions. And by this point in the war, no one wanted to see you. If you're a Western Union guy and you're coming down the sidewalk, moms, fathers, sisters, they all held their breath and hoped and prayed that you just ride on by and go to somewhere else. And so right. to see the looks on people's faces as you walked up to their front porch or rode up on your bike or car, or whatever his mode of transportation was, that could not have been, that had to be hard. I'm, I'm sure he took pride in the fact that, you know, or solace in the fact that he's delivering much needed, much required news, but I'm sure that's not something that you were, you know, super excited to do on a daily basis, but it had to be done. I'm sure there's some pride there, but seeing the reactions to people and the, their faces drop, tears coming down, I'm sure a lot of people literally falling to their knees and crying just by your presence. That had to be hard. Had to be hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and this this particular one is kind of what spawned his idea even before he joined the Marine Corps because at the time there was the Gold Star Mothers. Right, you know, everybody, any any service member from your family that was overseas, they would hang a blue star, and of course, if they were killed in action, then it, you would get a gold star to hang in your window, just to show, you know, the service that your family has given to the country. Well, he delivered with this one telegram in West Virginia to a father who lost his son, and I guess the mother was deceased or or whatever. But the father, with tears in his in his eyes, said, "You know, um, dads cry too." And it kind of resonated with Woody that it's not just the mothers that lose a son. It's it's not just gold star mothers. There's such a thing as gold star fathers, and uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters. So he started the Gold Star Family Foundation, which you know you can look a lot more into. Um, just a really, really neat organization. And again, sadly, uh, Woody Williams is, is no longer with us. And, and again, uh, very lucky, uh, to have, uh, talked with him one-on-one -on -one. and, um, you know, that, that same evening that he talked about his time on Guam and that I won this little bust here was also the day that, um, uh, we handed him a flamethrower 
in a Holiday Inn parking lot <laughs> and demonstrated it for the public with the fire marshal there in the fire truck. Um, and, and I know I've I've talked about that a few times, and um, we may do a recording of that for for maybe for Patreon subscribers to hear the whole story <laughs> because it was it was a doozy. <laughs> but uh, again, we'll 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 miss Woody as, as well. This another Iwo Jima veteran and. That I've had the opportunity to meet, and and the last one <clears throat> I'd like to talk about, and Don, I'm not sure if you've ever got to meet this particular one or not. He's still around, uh, and his name is Don Graves, and Don Graves is not, of course, not nearly as famous as uh, Woody Williams. But the interesting thing about Don is that Don actually was an assigned flamethrower operator on Iwo Jima, and is the last one alive. So even though Woody becomes famous because of a flamethrower, he wasn't a trained operator. He was a rifleman. Don actually was a flamethrower operator. So uh, really, of course, he's got some interesting stories. Um, and there is a picture of him, a very famous picture of him in, in several books on Iwo Jima, but he is not captioned. Um, it came out years after the war that he uh, recognized himself, but uh, a lot of stuff is that's not captioned as him. What makes hold, hold on, you're breaking up. Give it a second. Now, let me point out the life expectancy of a flamethrower operator in combat during World War II five minutes. Which is why Woody would have been a rifleman who was given a flamethrower because the life expectancy, that meant that the other flamethrower operators who were on that beach that day or that island that day were no longer around and they needed someone to fill that void. And that's how he was assigned the job. Go ahead, Jeff. Right. Yeah, so... Um... What makes Don Graves' story so great is not necessarily what he did on Iwo Jima, but how he dealt with it coming home. Um, it's really a great story of of him finding God, finding himself, several broken marriages, a whole lot of alcohol later, and he uh, finds himself um, basically becoming a preacher um for i forget how many decades just really devoted himself to god because he's told he said when he was on Ewo and he's as he's hungered down against the black sand he was so scared he he said he never prayed like that before but he said i prayed to god and if if you let me live through this i will serve you the rest of my life and he said he grew up again depression era very poor uh, he said, we didn't go to church much because we couldn't afford clothes or shoes to go to church. He said, we didn't have Sunday best. So he just kind of didn't go, and he didn't really have a use for God um, uh, until that day on Iwo Jima. And then when he comes home, he totally forgets about this deal that he made with God for quite a few years. I, I want to say it was well into the 1950s when his life was really just down in the dumps, spiraling out of control, um, had nothing left and got to the end of the bottle before he finally started turning his life around. Now, when you meet him in at different events and or in the 
you know, uh, hospitality suite of the hotel, you, man, you'd never know that this guy went through some of the most horrific combat in the Pacific in World War II. And, you know, kind of when we were growing up, we never looked at the old people, even though they're in our 50s at the time. <laughs> we never, you would have never known walking through a grocery store, right. the guy yelling at you from down the street. You know, it, perfect example of that. I was in middle school in 1993, 1992. And I can remember Park Street Elementary, Grove City, Ohio, no longer there. Tore it down because it was an old building full of asbestos. Um, one of my classes used to sit on the second floor facing the main street. Didn't know anything about it back then because I was just a punk kid in seventh grade. Thinking about it now, it's it breaks my heart. Every day around 11 o'clock, there'd be a quote-unquote old man, at least to us, old, of course, when you're in seventh grade, 30-year-olds are old. Guy walking down the street, broom slung over his shoulder. We just thought he was a crazy guy with a broom. Looking back on it now, no, he was doing his parade march with his rifle slung over his shoulder as he marched up and down the street, reliving those days. You know, to us, little a-holes in middle school, we're all laughing. Look at the weird guy with the broom on his shoulder walking up down the street twice a day. But, you know, it's crazy what you don't know when you don't know it. And Even if someone tried to say, hey, little jerks, knock it off. The guy's a vet at that age, you know. It would have made a difference. But uh, here's a – just because we're on a subject has nothing to do with the Pacific, but it is World War II. And, of course, at the time, I didn't know any better. Don't know how my middle school principal had a relationship with the Prince of Belgium at the time, 1993. And he was in the United States on a diplomatic thing. He came to our school and was talking about Belgium and World War II and how to that to this day, 1993, the people of Belgium still celebrate the Allies and what they did to liberate them. Of course, once again, back then, this we got to sit through and listen to this. God, I would love to, as now, being my age, I've been sitting in that room and <laughs> interacting with him. But back then, it never occurred to me. I, it's like, I forgot all about it. I was like, oh, well, yeah, the, the actor Prince of Belgium in 1993 came and talked at our school about World War II. But once again, it just flew over your head at those times. And I can remember yeah. living in Kentucky in the 80s. It, I was too young, but my brother was older. They had concentration camp survivors come talk to the fifth and sixth graders in history class and show their tattoos and the whole, the whole thing. But um, they try to make an impact on younger kids. But I think stuff like that, it's good to share with middle schoolers, but I think it's probably more effective with high schoolers just because they're a little more mature. Even still, a large population of them would not care, but the smaller population who do care and pay attention, it would have a more impact because they're more mature to know about the subject matter, whereas middle school's a little early. But, but yeah, just one of the things yeah. that comes with age. Well, I appreciate you sharing those stories with us. Um, before we go to the finalization of this episode where we're going to play some clips that comes from a previous episode, but I thought it'd be perfect. Um, sadly, the aforementioned cowboy reached out to me and let me know that because he's the one who recommended um, 
Mr. Robert Glenn, who fought in Bougainville, Guam, and on Iwo Jima. That sadly he passed away two years ago of COVID. But um, from episode eighty-one, we're not going to play the whole thing. I've isolated his experience on Iwo Jima, and I've gone as far as removing myself. So you're going to hear segments, and I've kind of done it in a way where the segments are self-explanatory. But I thought it'd kind of be cooler and more impactful for him just to tell his memories and what happened to him on the island without my interference, without my interjections and my my uh, questions. And so before we go into that, um, we do want to hear from each and every one of you. So send us emails at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Jeff, you have a beautiful book displayed behind you, as you always do. I know that's more for the episode tonight and not so much but what you're reading, but what are you reading recently? Well, it's funny you talk about uh, the classroom environment and how to get uh, you know students and young people involved in World War II. Kind of a perfect segue to what I am reading, and, and that's called The Things Our Fathers Saw. Uh, this is Volume 2 now. I, I finished Volume 1, which is all about uh, boys that served in the Pacific. Volume 2 and then Volume 3 is about the war in the air. Um, but if you're not familiar with Matthew Rizal and this series, I believe there's uh, nine books um, that uh, my beautiful wife got for me for Christmas. And even though I'm stacked up with college books I really need to be reading, I, I, I always find the time to read a little bit of this each night because it's very well done because it's the stories of the guys that this particular history teacher had the foresight to interview, to bring to his classroom and then record uh, or assign his students to find certain individuals, certain veterans and get their story. And then it's just all been compiled. So the author doesn't interject very much. It's a lot like a, like an interview, like what we do, like what Don does here for the podcast. So that's how it reads. It's kind of italics, the author, this and that. And then the veteran tells his story. Um, and then it's just compiled beautifully by by Matthew Rizal. So the things our father saw, it's what I'm reading. It's what I'm going to be reading for quite some time, the entire series. And go check it out. I do believe they are going to make, I don't know if they're going to do a, a series or a movie about it, but I've, I've heard there's there's something coming for you know from the video aspect on that series. So excited about that. You know, that that is the nice thing about when major series such as the Band of Brothers or the Pacific or in this case Masters of the Air comes out and it regenerates or builds new interests from a new generation in World War II and those projects do well that shows the people in charge of putting out productions and investing money in productions that hey World War II is viable again as a commercial property um, let's start funding some of these projects that we've you know, bought claims to or that's been sitting on the shelf because, you know, these screenplays or storylines or these books that have been optioned, you know, the interest is there again. So let's, and so anytime a series comes out that reignites interest, you'll see maybe not on the same scale, but you'll see more projects coming out in that five, you know, three, five year period on World War Two and the like. And so, Hopefully, if Masters of the Air does as well as everybody's hoping, we'll see more of these smaller projects coming out and people trying to find 
new stories to tell because so many of the other stories have been told so many times that people want to hear stuff new. And as we said, the war has impacted so many people in so many different countries across the planet that there's plenty of stories to tell as long as somewhere in someone's closet, someone's desk drawer, someone's, you know, basement, there's some letters and source material to be found in people like a Dennis Blocker or, you know, some of our other historian friends who've been on the show who are into research. They bring this stuff to light and maybe write a book and that book gains interest and gets op optioned and the source material comes to light. It generates new projects. And so hopefully we'll see some more of that coming down the pipe. I took a little yeah. time off from this book just because everything's been kind of crazy around here, but I, I've got back into it. I'm almost done with the Pacific Alamo about Wake Island. I do want to read just one little one little sentence here. This is after the island had fallen and the civilians and the Marines and a, a few of the Navy guys were in Chinese, Japanese-operated POW camps in China. Um, this is just a little interesting and I think kind of important thing. Um, men risked their lives to create handmade American flags, even though they had to keep them hidden until the war's end. Gathering cloths from old uniforms and tattered sheets, men fashioned rude stars and stripes in an effort to keep morale high. Two men in one camp laboriously stitched together flags by taking red cloths from Japanese quilts, white cloths from sheets, and blue material from a pair of dungaree pants donated by an Australian officer. While the flags could not yet take their proper place atop the flagpole, the prisoners drew inspiration knowing that the stars and stripes, and in parentheses it says, a symbol that to some individuals in less threatening times take for granted, exist amongst their misery. And now here's 3rd Marine, 2nd Battalion, Fox Company, Robert Glenn and his experiences on Iwo Jima. We prepared, they told us that we were going to go you know, uh, we were going somewhere. And we boarded the ship that wound up taking us to Iwo Jima. But we were really scheduled to go to a small island off of Okinawa so they would move the troops down close to it and the invasion of Okinawa would take place. Well, the operation on Iwo Jima didn't go too good. Thousand and some guys got killed that first landing. Well, we woke up the next morning and they said, we're going over the side, land on Iwo Jima. Well, we got in the Higgins boats or, you know, the landing boats and we went out there six o'clock in the morning. We stayed in them boats until almost four o'clock in the afternoon. We couldn't get in the land. So we went back to the ship, and then we went over the side the next morning. They had beached two ships, and they one landing craft could get in between them that had protection from the fire of the Japanese, and uh, we landed that way.
that night they said, come on, we're moving to another place. And we went up on the first airfield and started going towards the end of it. Evidently, the Japs knew something about the movement because they started firing cannons and mortars on it. We run for our lives, and we got to the end of the island, and they say, we're going to move through the outfits in front of us and move out in the attack. So that's when our captain got killed. He went up to make contact with the troops that were, we were going to move through, and he got killed, and next thing you know, it was about... Uh, might have been nine o'clock. We were still sitting there and some officer comes along and says, what are y'all still here for? We hadn't received any orders. And he says, we're going to move out and the attack. Well, we got up there and there was a guy sitting on a machine gun and we said, we're going to move on out in the attack. And he said, you don't have to go far. They're just right out there. They had sent three tanks up to lead the attack, and the Japanese had knocked every one of them out. And we got up and we moved to one tank, and as we started moving around it, bullets started hitting that tank. And me and two other guys dove underneath that tank. We never saw what was shooting at us or anything else. But we were under that tank, and... We stayed there, and about, I don't know, sometime in the afternoon, a guy comes up and says, you guys better get out from under here. We're going to tow this tank back. So we got up. We moved up to where some rocks were, and we sat there because we didn't, and you couldn't see anybody else around. So we didn't know what the hell was going on. Well, it got dark, and they turned around, and along comes a guy and says, Come on, we need to over to help E Company. E Company got shot up pretty bad. Well, one reason they got up, shot up kind of bad was uh, another outfit on the island went and fired on them because they thought they were Japanese. Well... Well, we carried wounded back to the aid station and everything. But uh, the next morning, then we finally got organized up with our platoon and everything. That day, we didn't do anything. You didn't dig foxholes. You, you got in shell holes. And I was sitting in a shell hole, and all of a sudden, I look, and here's the biggest thing that I ever thought I'd see being shot at me, but it was an eight-inch shell from a cruiser, and it fell short of me, blew me out of that hole, and when I came back, I, I was going to start to eat a can of meat and beans, and, well, I don't ever know what happened to it, because I never, and uh, they fired four rounds and all of them were short. And our sergeant went down and he told that Navy guy that was telling them, you know, how to fire. Well, he was on land and these 
shots were coming behind the lines. He went down and told him, if you fire another shell in here, I'm going to kill you. Well, they stopped. I got promoted to corporal, and they made me a fire team leader. The Marine Corps changed the lineup of a squad every invasion we made. Like when we went to Bougainville, I was the only one with the BAR. When we went to Guam, there was another guy in my squad that had a BAR. So we had two BARs to a squad there. Well, when we went to Iwo Jima, we had three BARs to the squad. They had three fire team leaders, and there was four of us. There was I was a fire team leader. We had a what they called scout, one guy that was supposed to be out front, and we had a BAR man in him. He had a ammunition carrier, and we had three of these groups in a squad. And then the next morning, we we got on the edge of the second airfield, and the lieutenant told me, he says, you run across, and then we'll send guys behind you, and you get them spread out. When they sent me across that airfield, well, I run across, and where I run across, I run right over a Japanese pillbox. And it was happy. And when I got over it and scrambled a little bit away from it, the other guys started coming. I said, I warned them about the hole, and I told them it's active. Some guys dropped hand grenades in there. But uh, so I was in a shell hole, and uh, our sergeant, he got across there. And he was to my right, and he says, we were facing a Japanese big gun emplacement. And uh, he says, anybody got any rifle grenades? And I, I said, I got a launcher, but I don't have any grenades. Well, this other fellow pipes up and says, I know where some are, and he run off. And he come back with a satchel that had rifle grenades in it. So I fired on that uh, gun emplacement, but it hit the side and it was like powder or something. And it just dropped off. It didn't explode or anything. I said, well, that ain't going to work. That pillbox that we passed that we thought was knocked out, all of a sudden hand grenades started flying out of it. But they were falling short of us. And uh, I was in that shell. There's another fellow in there with me. And all of a sudden, one of these grenades landed right on the edge of it and rolled down between my legs. Well, I jumped out of it, but I jumped right into another hand grenade. I got hit in the left arm, chest, and, uh, well, in my left arm, a piece hit that, what some people refer to as that nerve that they call the funny bone. Well, it hit that, and I thought my arm got blown off, really, and because I I couldn't feel nothing. And I was holding on to my wrist as I went walk back and I fell down one time and them guys in that line of a fifth division they say, Come on, you can make it. Come on, you can make it. 
Didn't nobody run out there to help me, but when I dropped this, started falling, I dropped my left arm and blood just poured out of my sleeve of my jacket. And, and I, I knew that I couldn't get a corpsman because the one that was with our platoon, I saw him get shot, so I knew that he wasn't available. So I just went off and started walking off. And I walked down to where I found the, the line of the 5th Division, and there, Corman went and he worked on me there. While I was laying on the stretcher, he says, look up there at that Mount Cerebrachie. That, that, that was when the flag was flying. I told him, I said, Van, I said, that's the first sign I've seen that we might really be winning. They took care of me, and they sent me to the hospital ship. And uh, being wounded, they cut your clothes off of you. They they cut on your shoes. They just cut the laces completely off and pull your shoes off of you, cut your pants legs up, and, well, of course, you have a belt on, and but they pull the belt off. And the same way with the jacket and everything, they cut that off, and they give you a gown and stuff and on a hospital ship they put you in it like it's almost like a basket shape shape like a human body you're not put on a cot or anything like that but they had them in there we were either too high or three i can't remember but i know the next day they took me in and they of course they knocked me out but they did their operating and the doctor came back to me after they had put me in the bed. He come back to me and he said, we took that piece of shrapnel out of that nerve. And he said, you might have to have it operated on again to get the feeling back in. Well, then I had a stroke of bad luck. Next morning, I couldn't move. And there was a doctor in the basket next to me and he went and turned and called the corpsman over there and he said you better get something he said this guy looks like he's got scarlet fever well i didn't know anything about anything but anyway they, they had doctors come to me then finally they had this doctor that was in charge of the ship come and the captain of the ship and when the captain of the ship came back there, he said, I heard him say, if this man's got scarlet fever, I won't be able to unload anybody off of this ship. Well, they come to find out that I got a, I was given two different sulfur drugs after they operated on me, and I got a acute reaction from it. Doctor says to me that, you know, you've got the symptoms of leukemia and leukemia affects your kidneys. And I hadn't, well, I, I hadn't urinated or anything, but anyone, they went down to Guam and I, I was unloaded and sent to an army hospital. And the army hospital, oh, when they came in there, they says, this doctor says, give him plenty of fluids, you know. Well, the next thing you know, I was swelling up. And he says, 
we got to get him out of that bed and walking. So they had a big nurse there. <laughs> she was bigger than I was. But she took me and started walking me out. And the next thing you know, I said, I got to go. She took me in there to urinal. And good gracious, I, my knees like to gave out from under me for the relief. But I mean, I, after that, I didn't have any didn't have any more troubles except with my left arm and I couldn't I couldn't handle things in it I, I, it's like I didn't I didn't know whether I was holding on to it or not if it was something small I'd drop it but anyway I got up and walking and everything and then they they started saying well since you walk we're sending you down there to this marine place so I didn't know what it was. But anyway, they sent me and there was a few others and everything. They sent us to this, what they call Marine Camp. But they had just bulldozed fields flat and they had turned around and they come out there and there was, they dumped a tent on the ground. They, they had so many of us over there and said, you got to put a tent up here put it up in line with the other ones, and this is where you're going to live. Nobody of the well people that, like, dumped the thing wanted to help put up the tent. And we had, they said, no, you got to put it up. Well, I couldn't use my left arm. There's one guy that was in my company that he got shot through the leg. It never hit the bone or anything, but uh, the bullet went clean through. And he was limping pretty bad. But anyway, we had to put up the tent. We put up the tent, and they had a very small mess hall set up for us. And so you, when you got in line for breakfast, when you got there, you just turned around and got in the line again for lunch. It was that long and that slow. Then the next thing I know, they had two doctors that set up and everybody had to go through them and if they thought you were wounded healed up good enough and everything they sent you back to Iwo well the guy that got that was in my tent that got shot through the leg he says he's still limping but he says they're going to send me back up there fly him up oh man but when they turned around and finally got around to talking to everybody, and when they found out that I was a third division Marine, which was, that was where our headquarters was, was on Guam. Well, they said, oh, we're going to send you back to your company. So they sent me back to the, where the third division were. I had been, I had a place and everything before. We went to Iwo Jima, and I was there two days, and they, and then they started coming back from Iwo Jima. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>